with you. Uh, my name is Eric Wakeling up here with Matt Davis, and we're excited to teach together, and so that's why we dress the same. You know, we thought we'd be twins, and you know, it'd be good. <laughs> that, was, that was a really great moment this morning when we saw each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was uh, not on purpose, but you can tell the Holy Spirit's already involved in this, in this morning together. It's going to be good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Pastor Dave is actually away, and he's on a, a great journey. We want to share a little bit of that with you. We are so proud of Pastor Dave yes. because he's engaging with technology. He has a smartphone, and he's on Instagram. He is going up to Lake Louise. He actually is already up there, and we thought, let's just give you a couple of screenshots from the life of Dave. Um, he's still working on selfies, um, but he, he, he's engaging. He's trying. So you want to follow him. I think it'd be fantastic if... He doubled the amount of people following him, and you can, uh, what is it, DJM52, you can do it. But he has on the left there some elephant seals, and he says, too cold, road to Big Sur. They closed the road, had to go all the way back. In the middle, he said he was feeling seasick, but still smiling. I just, and he had a Canadian biker and took a picture of that guy. We didn't get permission, but we put it up there anyway. Um, And then he finally did make it up there to Lake Louise. It's really far. It's 2,100 miles. 2,100. The the middle one, it says selfie head block. Um, It's a great follow. Seriously, it's one of the best follows. DJM52, I encourage you. And and really, we encourage you to put a ton of comments. Like just tons of comments on his his page. So go for it. Just say, what did you guys do while I was gone? (laughs) Fantastic. All right. But uh, as we're, we're talking about how the Bible is trustworthy today, that's the whole thing. We're thinking about... You know, what are some things that we have placed our trust in, maybe that we regret or shouldn't? So uh, I'll put it to you. Have you ever done that? Just a few years ago, uh, Ryan Rail and I went to Kitali, Kenya, and we went to go get a time-lapse shot. And we had some guides, and they said, come over here. There's an abandoned building. We can get you up to the top. And there were some local villagers that came in, and they did not like the fact that we were there. We were there with permission. And so this guy goes back to his village. He was a little bit intoxicated. He comes back with a machete. And we're all, oh, no problem. We're happy to leave. And our tour guides that we were trusting in that matter decided to be really macho. And there was like a, a fight that was ensuing. And I'm all, just just get me out of here. I ran into like the minivan and the guy opens it up and, ah, and I'm like, get me out. So you got to be careful yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You'd be think careful. tour guides would be okay, but... You should know that your high school friend, your senior year, is probably not the best one to place your trust in, as I did when the volleyball season was coming up and realized that hadn't yet done the physical exam that we had to do by a doctor, and so I decided to just sign the physical exam paper myself based on my friend's advice that that would be a good way to, you know, to get on the team, and it actually ended up being terrible advice, and I had Saturday school breakfast club twice, and you know, and missed a couple games as well. Yeah. Uh, when I was younger, my brother and I, we had bunk beds, and early Saturday morning, uh, we, we, we had this little thing going. He said, if I put five pillows and I stack them on the floor, and you jump off the top of the bunk bed head first, the pillows will be just fine. They will support you, yeah. right? I mean, no problem. And so I did that, and I was literally paralyzed for 30 seconds of my life. Steve says he was first, and he was fine. Oh, well, let's <laughs> argue later. All right, yeah. yeah. All right, well, I had one other one that's, uh, this, is, this is full disclosure here a bit. I mean, this was in my ministry career. This was before I was here at Calvary. Actually, I was a 21-year-old junior high leader at a church, another church. Uh, and, 
what I did was I trusted in something called the buddy system. The buddy system, the buddy system uh, you know, I mean, it's the buddy system, right? It's good. And so it's the way that we were able to track if we had everybody on our way home from Mammoth. But when we stopped in Bishop, I actually left a junior high girl in Bishop, California after dark. So that's why I'm here at Calvary Church now and not that other church. Uh, finally telling you guys this story. But no, I've, I've learned a lot since then. And Kids are safe. It's not really why I'm here. But no, uh, we, we think about this whole thing of what we trust in. And, you know, we trust in a lot of things. We place trust and we don't even think about it. We place trust in our car as we get in and we... We place trust that it's going to work, right? We place trust that even the mechanic that fixed the brakes, that that's going to work. We place trust and we get on an airplane that that's going to work. And we, we don't get to see the pilot's resume or how much sleep they got this last week. We have to trust. We trust in, you know, our food being prepared by the chef in the back. And we hope that it's, you know, it's covering all the health codes and things are going the, the right way they're supposed to be. And we even trust in things we read, and even as we're getting into talking about the Bible, but I think sometimes we'll read a piece of historical fiction. Maybe it's about some story that took place in the old Wild West or something, and we're like, did you know that they did this back then? And we, we trust it as like full-on gospel truth. And that's what takes us into the Bible, because we believe that the Bible is trustworthy. And I want to talk about this today. We want to cover this topic as a church today Because it is so vitally important for our lives. When we consider the amount of time that we spend reading this book and we spend teaching through this book every week, and this is the basis of how we would answer life's biggest questions. Who is God? What is God? Who am I? How do I relate to God? What is my role in the world and eternity? And how does this all work? We think about these huge questions that are answered here. And even the smaller things of how we should live this day and and how to use this life that we've been given. It is vitally important if we are going to look into this book for those answers and for that direction, and we truly believe it to be the voice of God, that we have to trust that it is what it says it is. And what we are saying to you is that you can trust it. We want to begin to show you that today. We've said today we're not even going to scratch the surface. We're going to show you that there is a surface, and there needs to be a lot more work that takes place when we cover this topic of the trustworthiness of the Bible. And so we're going to talk about some additional resources and helps that we'll have for you. But the, the, the question uh, that's here that we're going to talk through now, and if you haven't yet, I encourage you to grab your bulletin, pull out the little out to- outline in that pamphlet thing, okay? And uh, this is going to help. But even with this bulletin outline, a lot of times we'll put extra stuff on here for you. Today, there's so much extra stuff that we have a whole table of resources that we want to talk through with you. And then also something special here we'll talk about in a moment. But first off, I want to ask this question. And I want you to reflect on how you would answer this question. What is your level of trust in the Bible? You could, be, you could be coming from a variety of perspectives, okay? I, I bet we have people in this room that are coming from all of these perspectives. Number one, I don't trust the Bible. I don't believe that it is God's Word. I don't believe it's true. I think it's full of errors. I think that, you know, that what we have is, isn't even close to what it was back then. I don't believe, I don't trust the Bible. Number two is, I trust the Bible, but I don't know why. 
I, I have no idea why. I just have this kind of a bit of a blind trust in this. Someone told me this is the book that is the Word of God, and so I took it, and I think, okay, yeah. Well, maybe, so maybe that's you. Maybe you trust it, but you don't know why. Maybe you trust the Bible, and you do trust it, and you do give it authority in your life, that it does speak into those big and small questions that we have in this life, and you give it the authority to answer those or just, and to speak into what God's story is. And then four, though, maybe you trust the Bible, but you don't give it authority in your life. You're like, yeah, okay, I know that is God's word, but I'm not, I don't believe it, and I'm not living it right now. You know, I'm not letting that affect my life, my heart, my mind. So we want to help guide us through all of this, and I hope that you can answer that question now, and we'll see where you're at as we go in the end, and we have some challenges for you. But first off here is that we trust the revelation of God because it is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Okay, these three words we're going to look into. We trust it because it's inspired, inerrant, and infallible. And we want to show you even the uh, first off here. This is, uh, Calvary Church has a doctrinal statement, okay, or a statement of faith. These 13 uh, statements of what we believe as a church. And as you become a member, you say, yes, I believe these things as well. And this is the very first of that statement, and it's about the Bible. It says this, we believe the 66 books of the Bible, consisting of all the books of the Old and New Testaments, are the written word of God. They are a supernatural revelation from God himself. These books are inspired, inerrant, and infallible. And what comes next is a bit of a definition of inerrancy. Without error of any kind in every word and concept. They are the final authority on all matters they address and all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life. Okay? So that is the, the Calvary official belief about the Bible, about the scriptures. And list some references there that you can look into. We're going to talk about many of them today, but encourage you to be digging into this and, and, and researching and investigating this for yourself. But I want to look at those three key words that we saw there. Inspired inerrant and infallible. So first of all, inspired. What does that mean? That the, that the Bible is inspired. Uh, it comes really from this verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, that says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, even as we look at this, okay, so inspired, that's where we you see this word here in our New American Standard Bible. But we also know that this, this Greek word, even more literally, uh, is translated as God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. So it's breathed by God. So the Holy Spirit of God is breathing these words out. And so that's why we, we'd say we, we get the Bible from God himself. God inspires a human author— who then writes the words, you know, with ink onto parchment or whatever, okay? And so that's where it comes, and then we would have those words that would come out. It is inspired by God himself. The Holy Spirit gives the words of the scriptures to those human authors, and then that's what we read. Now, uh, another question, though, here that we have to ask is, okay, so wait, what are the scriptures? All right, so if all scripture is God-breathed, what is the scripture? Because I would read this, and I, and I have asked that question. It was like, okay, wait, this is Paul saying all Scripture is God-breathed. Is he just referring to the Old Testament, right, the Tanakh? Is he re referring to the Hebrew Scriptures? And here I would say, 
Well, here's, here's some reasons why I think he's speaking to more than that. Okay, so what are the scriptures? You've got the canon of the Old and New Testament of what we have. Now, the canon was this officially decided upon by these early church fathers of what is the scripture. Now, I don't have time here to go into the whole process. Again, we're going to refer. We've got some amazing resources here, books, pamphlets, videos, other things that you can check out. But the, a couple key points about this, okay? One is that um, something was included in the New Testament if the author was an eyewitness of the risen Jesus. It's a key point of the whole canon process, that the author of that was an eyewitness of Jesus, of the risen Christ, okay? Those writings, they said, were uniquely authoritative, different than other writings. There, there are tons of other writings of the time, but these writings were those that were uniquely authoritative. Then you also have that the New Testament and Jesus himself as written in the Gospels, they, the New Testament and Jesus quote the Old Testament. And also give the Old Testament authority. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, giving authority. He's reading even from a scroll, and he's reading from a copy. Wasn't the original autograph that Jesus is reading from? Jesus is reading from a scroll and giving that authority, right? And he didn't make disclaimers or something about the fact that, you know, uh, of how many, like, manuscripts were done or how many copies this was down the line or things like that. No, Jesus gave that, that word authority. Then also, the New Testament speaks of itself as Scripture. Peter, right? Peter the disciple, Peter that, that rock of the early church, leader of the early church, speaks about Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3.15. And he says, Just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. And I like this part. It says, in which are some things hard to understand. <laughs> and so you can feel like, you know, Peter had a hard time understanding Paul's writings too. So if you struggle, just know Peter struggled a bit too to understand them. But then he also says, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their, own to their own destruction. And that key part is that he says, as they do also to the rest of the scriptures. So Peter, this disciple, original disciple of Christ, this rock of the early church, speaks of Paul's writings as scripture. Okay, so I want you to, to see some of that in there. And, and so that's where we have what are the scriptures. Some other things that you could see, some passages on inspiration that will just point at super quickly. This is Revelation 1, 1 through 3. And I'm just going to read this yellow part where it says, he, being Jesus, sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. So that's where you see even this kind of inspiration of God of these scriptures. And then Paul speaking in Galatians 1, and he says, I didn't receive this gospel from man. He says, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, so I hope that gives us a, a glimpse into what inspiration means, that the scriptures were inspired by God. Now, there's another word called inerrant. Inerrant or inerrancy, this is a, a word that has a little bit more uh, a debate around it. It can be a little more controversial that people have a lot of arguments over this word. And, uh, and as I said, we believe the Bible is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. And because here's like, here's philosophically, you know, why we believe this is that Scripture, if Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, we believe God is perfect 
God is true. God doesn't lie. Therefore, the words that were given by God to these human authors were, are, were also that. Okay, we're also without error and are true. If God inspired them, then they're true. Now, um, I want to point out also, like, just a little bit of something like this word. People might even say to you, well, it doesn't say in the Bible, it doesn't say that uh, it's inerrant. Well, that's true. The word inerrancy is not in the Scripture, but also the word trinity is not in the Scripture. But these are doctrines that can be found throughout the breadth of Scripture, as well as through, like, even that sense of a philosophical argument of if God is true and good, therefore his word is true and good. Some other Scriptures that support this point, Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word, or all of your words added up, right? The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Proverbs 35, every word of God is tested. Okay? We see God's word as being tested and standing that test. So we see some of this throughout Scripture. We also get some different support okay, when we think about this inerrancy. We have support from archaeology. I'm just going to touch on archaeology here. Matt's going to talk a little bit more about it. But we do know just simply that more than 25,000 archaeological discoveries have been made in, on the land in Israel and in Turkey and in Greece and in Rome. Like, we've got all of these different archaeological discoveries. And all of them support the truth and the claims and the words of the Scriptures. None have gone against it. We also have a bunch of... Uh, extra-biblical non-Christian sources, okay? So here's, a, here's where we start getting a little, you know, schoolish if you didn't think we were already there, okay? It's like where this is, this is definitely more of a sort of a seminar topic than a, a preach about it, you know, topic. And so I want you to get this. I want you to understand this, but it is a little bit more technical. And you can see in your outline there, we've listed some of the detail about that. But writings outside of the Bible by people who weren't necessarily Christians— there's also writings by uh, people who were Christians, but there's some by Josephus, Pliny, Tacitus, others that are listed there, uh, which you can read more about as well. But these are supporting the claims or things of, of even the historical events that took place in the Bible. All right, so then I think if you're like me at all, or if you have any kind of skeptic in you, uh, you would then maybe ask, so what's the deal with these errors and contradictions that people talk about, right? Why are, why are there these errors and contradictions? We want to talk about that, okay? Because now we did say inerrancy, the, that the Bible is inerrant in its original autographs. Okay, the original autograph is, what that means is, you know, the Holy Spirit inspires that human author, Paul, let's say, or whatever, he writes the letter down. That actual document that he wrote, we would say, is inerrant. Now we have to recognize that um, a couple things with this, okay? One is all translation involves interpretation, okay? I want to say that and have you understand that. All translation involves interpretation. Now even more literal translations, like our Bible that we use, it's on the back of the seat in front of you, it's called the New American Standard Bible. This is known as a, a more literal word-for-word type of translation, Okay? There's definite reasons for all different types of translations, and they all serve their purpose. We're not going to be those kind of people that say, this is the right one and those are the wrong ones. They have different purposes. Now, uh, also, I would say is that even ones like this, even on 2 Timothy 3 uh, that we read, where it said all Scripture is inspired by God. 
Well, others say God breathed, and that actually might be more literal. They make a choice. You have to make a choice sometimes in translating when you come to interpreting a word. It might have three options out of the, the Greek or Hebrew, and there's choices made. Okay, so I want us to understand that, that this Bible that I have right here is not inerrant. I will not make that claim on this stage, okay? That there can be, uh, there can be minor errors that we want you to talk through, because what I don't want you to do, I want you to understand this, Okay? What I don't want you to do is place that there could not be any kind of minor detail error in an American English translation as the foundation of your faith. And then someone comes up to you and they say this. How come there are thousands of errors in the manuscripts? And you say, what? There's thousands of errors? Yes, there's thousands of manuscripts that have the Greek name for John with one N when it's supposed to have two Ns. That's literally true, okay? But if it's inspired by God, how come they didn't get that right? Okay, that's why I'm saying, that's why I'm describing this the way I'm describing this. However, that does not affect the meaning or the purpose of the scriptures, right? There's another one that people might point out is, how come in 2 Chronicles 9.25 it says that Solomon had 4,000 horse stalls or stables for his chariots? And then in 1 Kings 4.26 it says he had 40,000 horse stalls. Isn't the Bible contradicting itself, you know? 4,000, 40,000, that's a big difference. Well, no, it was a, a manuscript error that somebody, they, they looked back at this and found that there really was 4,000 with the amount of chariots he would have had and that kind of a thing. And that was somebody, yeah, added a zero and it carried on in some manuscripts and that. And you know what? I need to be able to kind of person that says, this isn't going to destroy my faith. I don't hear that there's 40,000 and 4,000 and have my entire faith crumble and I abandon Christ because of that, you know? And so don't build your foundation on the wrong things. We do build our foundation upon the Word of God, but not on the fact that the New American Standard Bible doesn't have a couple manuscript copy errors, okay? I don't know if that's like blowing some of your minds and freaking you out, but I want you to understand that because I don't want your entire faith to crumble on something that you don't need to be standing on. Um, Here's the thing. We believe that the Bible is inspired and errant and then infallible. That there's some verses here that speak to this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That his word never fails. His word lasts. Jesus even said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We believe it. It's inspired, inerrant, and infallible, and we can trust it. All right. Um, we just sang a song before we came up here that said, give me faith to trust what you say. I, I want us to get this, that you walk out of here today knowing that the Bible that you hold in your hands is something that we need to attach ourselves to, that we need to be able to look to, and that that's going to be helpful. We want to trust that the written Word of God, we want to trust in it because it is reliable, it is dependable, and it is authentic. I want to give you three evidences, so hopefully you have your outline in hand already. I, I just want to walk through things that for me in my life have been faith builders for me. Something that has been giving me faith as we go through. So here's, here's number one, is just archaeological, sociological. Um, stuff that you would read, and you maybe have read many, many times, and you just kind of gloss over, and you wouldn't even notice it probably until this moment, and we kind of point this out and say, hey, did you see this? 
It's where the Bible and like archaeology like just kind of collide and then your faith is just grown. It's, it's one of the reasons I know we just kind of hit on this all the time. But like go to Israel because it increases your faith in the word of God. It increases your faith in God himself. So let me just give you a couple of examples. Number one is from Joshua chapter 11. Um, Joshua is on a rampage. He's going through and cleaning house. And this passage here. It says that he's going through, this is Joshua chapter 11. Um, Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatzor. This is a city, and he struck it with its king with the sword, for Hatzor formerly was the head of all of these kingdoms. They struck every person who was with it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was no one left who breathed. And then there's this little tag on that says, and he burned Hatzor with fire. I'm sure I read it at some point, but when I finally got there and I was in this place, in this magnificent, like, tell, it's this huge area of ancient ruins, you go there and, and the tour guide just kind of points out and says, um, hey, by the way, I'd like to point this out. And you see between these rocks, and not just these rocks, but all over this one site, you see this ash layer that's between, and you, you literally see rocks that are burned, and this is from like thousands of years before. And you read it in the Bible, and you see it with your eyes and say, wow, there might be something there. Or you go to something like John chapter 5, verse 2, and it says that now it was, now there in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, there was a pool. The pool is called Bethesda. And then you read this, having five porticos. I'm telling you, like five years ago, I didn't know what a portico was. I even looked it up this week just to make sure I was right. For years, people have been looking and they thought John was crazy. This was just mythological. They actually thought that this five porticos, he was referencing the the five books of the Torah because they couldn't find anything with with the five porticos. Portico is just think of columns with a a porch. There's, There's a roof on it. And so in the 1890s, so just over 100 years ago, archaeology, they come in, and in, right there in Old Town, Jerusalem, they uncover these, these two pools. And, and this is a model um, that you can see in Israel. There's a place where you can kind of walk the whole area. But they see these two pools, and they found this, archaeologically speaking. And they have four sides, and there's one dividing it right in the middle. And there are your five porches, your five porticos. And you go, wow, that wasn't just a story. And then there's something like Luke 7. This is more on the sociological end. Jesus is walking through uh, with his disciples, and he's in this place called Nain. Nain is part of the Galilee region up towards the north. And as he and his disciples are walking around, they come along a funeral procession. And Jesus comes up, and this passage records, and it says that when Jesus saw, he first comes up to this woman. This woman is already a widow, so she's lost her husband. Now she's lost her son. Now she is all alone. He comes up to her, and he comforts her with these words. He says, do not cry. He gives her comfort. And then it says that he goes back, and he goes to the rest of the funeral procession. It's like, you read that, and you're like, okay, great, but... J.P. Moreland would say that this for him is one of the huge pieces of facts that, that make the trustworthiness of Scripture just come alive. Because in the Galilee region, if you were going to have a funeral, you would have the people who lost somebody, kind of the funeral party, they were walking through, and then the casket would always come behind. But if you went down to Jerusalem, it was opposite. You would have the casket with everybody else following behind. And so you look, and the author of Luke and Acts was very concerned with what was going on in Jerusalem and Judea. But he even notes this thing that kind of happens in a different part 
up in Galilee, and this is kind of how things work. And just a side note that Jesus ruins funerals. Three funerals that he goes to and they come alive. He even kind of ruins his own, uh, right? Like, so like somebody died, like, hey, Jesus, want to come to our funeral? We need a, a resurrection here. So um, I just want you to see, like, I look at some of that stuff in Scripture and there's countless, like so much in there. I, I wish we had more time. That's one thing. Here's, here's the second thing, um, is the transmission of the word as seen in, in Torah scrolls. And you see um, what, what is down here. Um, below, this is um, my wedding vows to my wife. I just wrote them out. And just kidding. This is a Torah scroll. Uh, many people from first hour, they said, is this like a copy? Is this a facsimile? No, there was a scribe who actually sat down with this parchment, with a, a, a quill, and actually wrote out the letters and made these words and, and formed a Torah. Now, we were I, I, I want us to see that in our culture today, it's just so easy for us. We have like printed Bibles. Many of you have multiple copies of the Bible in your house. I have like 10 in my office. You have your phones and your iPads and they all have the app. And it's just so easy for us today. Everything is so You go to synagogue back in the old days in Jerusalem and you walk up the stairs and it's not like normal stairs. There's like space and there's different lengths and heights. So as you go in and you approach God, you enter mindfully. And so we look at scripture and I think like, oh, the Bible. I got 10 of them. I'm missing one. I'll pull it up on my phone. I'll look on Google, Bible Gateway, or I'll just go to the closest bookstore and I'll find one. Or a really like CD Motel and the Gideons hopefully put one there. Now... I want you just to understand how important the Word of God is, what, what it takes. Let me just jump down here, and I just want to show you, like, the Word of God, what it took to be a scribe. There's more than 4,000 laws that a scribe had to follow, go through lots of training. This is like Hebrew calligraphy, and we have this. You'll have a chance to come up and interact and to see this afterwards. Um, you, you might be able to see we put a couple signs because we're paranoid. Um, we're borrowing this from uh, Josh McDowell, and uh, so he's let us, us use this, but this is a real Torah scroll, and so don't touch it. Don't put your coffee down and say, oh, what is this? Or don't put your purse or your man bag there, right? Just don't touch the Torah. All right, we got that. But you can actually download this. If you have a smartphone, you can go and look up the Lodz, L-O-D-Z, Torah scroll. And you can actually see, a, a, it's another uh, one of Josh's scrolls. He sent us this one, and I don't actually know what this one is. We were hoping to have the other one, and he, you know Josh, he has so many of them. He's all, just take one, and this is what we got today. So, but when you come up here, you'll actually be able to interact. Genesis 1-1 is way over here in the top right-hand corner. And it goes through everything you see here on the table. This is about 28 feet. This is Genesis if we kept going out, this rolls out to be about 72 feet or so. And it just goes on. But this is Genesis through Deuteronomy. And as you come, you can take a magnifying glass and you can look. But as you look, you'll even see there's grid lines. The process of making the parchment, the paper, it's calfskin. And, and you have to take it through this treatment and you get the hair off and you have to make it smooth. And you, you wash it and you clean it and it becomes smooth. And then you take a quill. You take one of these feathers, and then there's these things called gall nuts. It's, it's from a, a tree. Insects are there. They crush it. They boil it. And it, it, it becomes the ink. And, and so they write this. The process to be a scribe and to write something like this would take you one year to three years. 304,805 letters. 
just in the Torah, the first five books of Scripture. And they would painfully, like not one letter is touching another letter. Everything is lined up. And this is an exact copy of, of another scroll. And after it's done, they roll the whole thing out and there's a committee of three rabbis. They go through and they check. And they're looking for stuff like Leviticus 13, 33 is the center word in all of the Torah. Does it line up? We need every line to start the same word and end with the same word. And you'll see there's places where there's spaces. And that's like this Selah moment. Like, read this and now take a breath. All of that is in here, and there is careful attention to detail. And one thing that a lot of people were asking, you'll see when you come up here, there's like these little kind of antenna that are coming up from the top of some of the letters. And this is a form of, of writing, and it was, it was exact. Um, in, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, not one jot or tittle will pass away. He's going to fulfill all of the law. And, and so this, this the little antenna that are coming up, those are what they call the tittle, and the josh, is, the jot is, is a yud. It's like a little comma. And so as you come up, you'll see some of those. But the smallest, most minute detail, God has kept and preserved for all of that. Now, um, that's, that's what we have right here. And I just want to show you, because on this app, we have... Do you want to jump up? I, no, I could <laughs> okay. jump down, but I, I can't, I can't right. jump up. All right. So I, I just want to show you, this is... Um, this is what the app looks like. And so I'm actually going to just go back. Um, this is the Lodz Torah scroll. And uh, what's, what's interesting about it, there it is. And I'm actually going to show you this too. Um, the picture on the left over here, that is, that is my great, great grandfather. His name is Shalom Kanarovich. Uh, he was chief rabbi in a place called Grod Now, Russia. And uh, chances are that the, the other scroll that, that Josh has, that, that my great-great-grandfather could have interacted and read from it. And that's, it was, it's a really cool piece. The, the person on the right, I, we've never seen before. I don't know who that guy is. That's actually me at my bar mitzvah. That was the height of my Hebrew reading ability. And if you ask me to read something here, I'm just going to fake it and just say a bunch of stuff. And you have no idea. Because it's been, it's been really, really bad ever since then. Um, but this, this scroll, um, Josh takes it around and he will, he'll, he'll show people what, exactly what we're doing here. And, and you'll, there, there's a picture of it there too. But I just want you to see, this app is phenomenal. It's such a great resource, totally free. But you can actually go through and you'll see some of these things. Like, um, sometimes uh, this community, um, there were, the Lotz Torah scroll was from a poor community in Lotz, Poland. And so as they um, would have a tear in the, in the Torah, they would repair it because they didn't have the money and the resources to actually like put away the Torah and, and have a new one written. So they had to actually um, repair over time. And so you can see um, there's just detail even from the very beginning. Um, some detail in the, in the first letter right here. And you can kind of see this is that, that first word. It, that, that letter is a bet. Uh, but it's from the word Bereshit, which means beginnings, and we say in the beginning. And even right here, this like third word you can see is the name of God, Elohim. It's right there in the top center. Elohim is the name of God. And, and you can see there's lots of detail and all of that, but you can go through. And as you, you go through, you can see um, loading. Um, here's, here's a break right here where you see this break. This is the... the break between Genesis and Exodus. And so you go through here, and there's just great attention and detail. You get to a place like this, 
And this is uh, what they call the Song of the Sea, after the Israelites crossed through the sea and they sang a song. And it's kind of written differently. So you could take this in and you could sing this and you go a little bit further down and then you have the Ten Commandments right here. So, and, and what I even love about this is you can kind of zoom in. You'll see that the scribe who wrote this um, was doing this by candlelight. And so you see that there's some candle wax drippings on there. So just want to uh, encourage you to take a look at that, and you can see a little bit more. So that is, that's I, I, just to see the painstaking process of what it takes to put this together, the transmission of the Word of God. Before they would even write the name of God, they would go and ceremonially wash their hands. They would take a different quill, and one letter prayerfully at a time, they're writing this down. Because they want to give honor to the word. And so my encouragement is if, if you don't even have the affection for the word. That you sit with a passage like Psalm 119 where the psalmist is saying stuff like, Oh how I love your law. I meditate on your word all the day. Your, your word is like honey to my lips. Like you do that and say, God, stir in me and, and work in me in this area. Here's just the third thing. Um, this is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, one of the most important factors in us knowing the reliability of the Old Testament scriptures, before the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, our oldest manuscripts go back to like 1000 AD. Um, this find, what Charles Feinberg would say is the greatest find in archaeological history, brought us all the way back to 2nd century B.C., like another 1,200 plus years. And so now we have something. And what you want to do is you want to kind of keep this in mind is when you play the telephone game and you say something to the first person and you go around the circle with like 10 people, by the time you get there, it's going to change because the transmission has changed. They go out and they find the Dead Sea Scrolls and they compare it with what we have today in our Bible. And they say that you could take one quarter of one page on your Bible and that would list out all of the discrepancies. And none of it changes the meaning of the word. You could take Isaiah 53. In fact, they've found an entire scroll of Isaiah, which has all the Messianic prophecies. One of the greatest ones is Isaiah 53. And in there, there are only three letters that are different out of 166 words. And so we can have this trust that, that the word of God is, is true. There was a, a young Bedouin shepherd boy who was trying to chase down his sheep in 1947. He throws a rock in a cave to try to scare the sheep away. And he hears something break. And he breaks one of these vessels containing the Torah, containing the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are not just... And, oh, there it is. And that's Cave 4 in Qumran. And... This is where they found most everything. And, and he crawls in here and he sees all of this. And he takes this. And, and today you can go online and you can find it's all, all over the place. They've fully scanned everything. But this young Bedouin shepherd boy takes the scroll, puts it in a bag and hangs it from a tent pole. And it sits there for months until he finally sells it off for $100. That was 1947. A few years later, 1954, sold um, to a, an archaeologist uh, for $250,000. And just in 2009, APU bought pieces, antiquities, from the Dead Sea Scroll collection for $2.5 million. 
I tell you that because I believe that we are in many ways just like this young Bedouin shepherd boy. That we have this priceless treasure of the word of God and it doesn't have the value for us that it should. The word of God is reliable, it's dependable, and it is authentic. It's so incredible to me to see how that, I think that Dead Sea Scrolls is such a clincher for me to see the way it has stood over those thousands of years. Just amazing. And I hope that inspires you and helps assure you as well. But as we, we come to the point of, of closing this, this portion of our morning is just where I want us to consider again, what is your level of trust in the Bible? Where are you at with this? And what has this begun to stir up for you as we begin to talk about it today? And we have some next steps. I encourage you to grab your, your bulletins if you haven't again yet. But on the back, it, it gives some steps depending on where you're at. And we'd say, first of all, if you don't trust the Bible or if you trust it and you don't know why, investigate it. Dig in. Find out. Like, if you don't believe that it's true, have you actually done some research on that? We want to point you towards some, some resources. We'll be just hanging out. You can check out all this stuff at this table. Uh, almost all the stuff over here is available at the bookstore as well. That you can, you can check out a pamphlet, you know, because sometimes we don't want to read a whole book, honestly. And these pamphlets are good. You can check out a chapter in a book. You can get a whole giant book. We also have some uh, videos that you can watch at Right Now Media, which is this website that we have that we offer uh, for free here at Calvary to watch these classes on video. We've got, there's about seven of them, I think all on this topic of these classes that you can dig more into. Is the Bible trustworthy? Is it reliable? Is it what it says it is? And so is, is it really the Word of God? And so I encourage you to do that. Investigate it. And then if you do trust it and you do give it authority in your life, then read it. We want you to dig in. We want you to immerse yourself in this incredible book. As Matt talked about it, having that, that sense of wanting it, of valuing it. And so I encourage you to spend time reading it. If we really believe this is the voice of God in our lives. I, I believe we can hear the voice of God in, in some other ways as well. But this is the, the most number one reliable way you can hear the out loud voice of God to you. Is you've got hundreds and hundreds of pages here before you start worrying about having to try and figure something else out. Okay? So dig into this book. Read it. And then if you trust it, but you aren't believing it or living it. You know, if it's not really affecting you, your life. If you're not being transformed as well as being informed, give it authority. Give it authority in your lives. The Bible has authority, and, and we want it to speak into those huge questions and those small questions in your life. And we'll actually be talking more about uh, the authority of God's Word next week. So to, this today is as we trust it. Next week is as we give it authority in our lives. And so uh, we're going to spend some time now in worship and at the, the stations that are around the room, not necessarily this front part. We're going to have a set of worship where we can just sing to God and to, to praise Him for who He is and what He's done in our lives. You have a chance to, to give. There's little table stations around the room where you can give of your tithes and your offerings, where you can uh, receive communion as well to remember the, the death of Jesus through His the, his body and his blood, as we remember, through the bread and the cup, uh, as well as you can receive prayer at the prayer points today. So let's pray, and uh, then at the end of the service, we'll have a chance to come up and check all these things out. Heavenly Father, thank you. 
thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this book that has your voice for us, God. And I pray that it would have great value in our hearts, our lives, and in our practice. God, I pray that you would help those of us who aren't trusting in this book. God, I pray that you would begin to give us faith to trust what you say, but also give us, uh, Lord, facts as we investigate it more. Lord, I pray, God, that you would speak into us. Give us a a fire for your word, and may it be uh, just the authority for all things in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.